Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Good morning. Today is the day the Lord has made. We are rejoicing. We are glad in it. I am saying good morning this morning to the four little Kafori boys. Good morning, gentlemen. They're uh, they're friends of mine. I found out last night that uh, in the morning as they're getting ready for school, they listen to Mornings with Carmen. And so I thought I would just, you know, take a moment of personal privilege to say good morning. Good morning, guys. Good morning, Katie. Okay, so uh, first, let me ask this. Have you gotten into the Word today before you're even thinking about getting into the world? So where in the Word are you today? Maybe there's a verse of Scripture you are reflecting on. Maybe there's a whole chapter of Scripture that you are seeking to have God um, plant deeply into your heart and mind in order that it might take root there and uh, and actually grow into a harvest of righteousness in your own life uh, and be that which comes out of you when the world presses in. I am I am thinking today uh, in particular about Ephesians chapter six. Uh, we're going to talk later with Rob Renfro about you know what it what it looks like to to stand firm uh, in life when when life is increasingly uncertain what it looks like to really stand on the Word of God and be confident in God's goodness and faithfulness, um, unfailing faithfulness of God. And so there's these wonderful verses in Ephesians 6 that talk about standing and standing even when it's really hard to stand and then trusting that God will stand you when you can stand no more. But I think when I um, when I consider Ephesians 6, the the list that both consciously and, and then increasingly unconsciously, because I dwell on it a lot, come to mind— are the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, and then praying in the spirit. Because um, when I get dressed every single day, I consciously consider uh, putting on the full armor of God. Now, obviously, the clothing that I put on is not armor-like in virtually any way, but it is a physical, uh, simple representation of something that I do every day that uh, helps me make this, uh, connect this eternal truth to my everyday life. And so what does it look like in my life to every single day put on the belt of truth? What does it look like for me to be sure that, uh, that everything, um, that everything I do is a, not only a pursuit of the truth, but a purveyance of the truth into the world? Um, and so uh, the belt of truth, who is the truth? That would be Jesus. What is the truth? The very word of God. Am I a person of truth? Am I pursuing the truth? Am I seeking the truth? Am I speaking the truth? Uh, and then the, bless, the breastplate of righteousness. When you think about where a breastplate goes, you're talking there about guarding your heart. You're also you're, you're talking about something that is pr- protective of you. It's also um, you know a wonderful thing that fends off uh, the flaming arrows of the evil one. And so how is it that you're guarding your heart with the very righteousness of Christ? Are you covered in Christ? Do you understand that your righteousness is not your own? We are not self-righteous. 
we are righteous only because the righteousness of Jesus Christ has been imputed unto us uh, by the grace of God. How about the shoes of the gospel? You know, um, beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And so you and I are the people who are going to head out into the world today to, uh, to, to, to tread around um, on this earth and to reclaim the places where we go for Jesus. And so we need the shoes of the gospel. What is the gospel? Um, is it just anything that I think is good uh, by, by my changing understanding of that term? No, no. The gospel has actual content. Um, the gospel is not only the, the knowledge of the good news of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done on our behalf. The gospel is the redemptive arc of all of human history. It's, it's what God is doing. It's what he's up to. It's the eternal perspective um, on everything. All right, then we got the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the very word of God, uh, and praying in the spirit. So I don't have time to unpack uh, each and every one of these. Maybe we'll return to that uh, on another day. But what, what passage of scripture are you really living into today? Not just what are you memorizing, but what passage of scripture are you living into? We have to be people of the word in such a way that through us, the word gets walked out into the world. And that's how it works. It has to take root in our own lives first. All right. Uh, next up, Ben Johnson's going to be here. He and I are going to talk about not only uh, developments in the impeachment inquiry, we're going to talk about uh, freedom of speech and the rising cost of it. And then uh, just after that, I've got a former member of the Turkish parliament who's going to be here to talk with us about what's happening uh, with Turkey and their incursion into northeastern Syria and the threat to the Kurds. All of that up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is my right. Joining me now, Ben Johnson from the Acton Institute. You can follow him at The Rights Writer. Ben, welcome back. Good to be with you, Carmen. So um, let's lead off with developments in the impeachment inquiry. Um, And there are literally, it feels like, a thousand directions that we could go at any given moment um, in consideration of this conversation. It does appear as if... Um, the White House is refusing to cooperate. Talk with us about um, uh, talk with us about how the process is disrupted when when all parties um, do not actively participate in that which is clearly laid out in the separation of powers and sort of mutual accountability as the way things are supposed to work. Yeah, this is a really unusual step on on all sides. Uh, As we've talked about in the past, uh, impeachment is the sole purview of the House of Representatives, and every uh, impeachment inquiry to date has uh, had a vote of the full House. So it would begin with uh, usually the House Judiciary Committee would uh, approve articles of impeachment as they did against Richard Nixon, and then it would proceed to a full House vote. Nancy Pelosi didn't uh, do that in this instance. uh, It was simply appointed that uh, there would be an, uh, an inquiry from uh, from her chamber. So there was not a full House vote. Donald Trump is saying since there's not a full House vote uh, and it belongs to the House as a whole, this isn't a real impeachment inquiry. Uh, so his argument is, under the Constitution, there is no impeachment inquiry because there hasn't been a full House vote. 
so since there's no inquiry in his mind, he's not going to uh, cooperate with anything that is not constitutional. So you've got this standoff where uh, you know the, the House of Representatives, as far as its leadership is concerned, has uh, an, an impeachment inquiry to uh, to see about trying him, possibly removing him from office and disqualifying him from ever holding office again in the future. And Donald Trump uh, is essentially saying it's just another day in Congress. This is just a sideshow and, and a PR exercise. So the two are at absolute loggerheads. And uh, really the most uh, effective uh, uh, part of this is that uh, the, the White House has refused to turn over documents and refused to allow witnesses to appear. According to the House, uh, he didn't even give a heads up that the witnesses would not show up for the testimony. Uh, they simply realized that no one was was forthcoming. So uh, the, the, the uh, PR effect, you, you hear this dueling narrative uh, the House will say that this is further proof of obstruction of justice, which is uh, the key charge they're trying him on, and the fact that he refuses to cooperate is is uh, key uh, evidence that he is, in fact, guilty of obstruction. And the White House claims that it's not obstructing anything, it's upholding constitutional norms, and the, the, White, uh, the uh, House of Representatives has ignored constitutional norms for so long that the White House is reinforcing them at this time. So... Those are the two narratives that you're hearing, but it's an absolute standoff uh, where a, a major focus of one branch of government and uh, uh, is being entirely ignored by another branch of government. The two are not only operating uh, at loggerheads with one another, but in fact are completely opposed to one another. So even as many of the um, <clears throat> barbs shot back and forth are uh, uncivil. It is an opportunity for a civics lesson because I'm sure that there are kids listening right now who are saying to themselves, hey, there's a third branch of government. And we may see them get actively involved. Uh, it sounds like the House Democrats are preparing a wave of subpoenas um, in response to uh, the executive branch ignoring Congress on this point. And so if those subpoenas go forward, then we now I mean, essentially, it now involves the judicial branch as well. I mean, eventually. Right. Does that sound about right? It, it's going to have to uh, sooner or later. Someone's going to have to settle this. And uh, so, yeah, this is definitely going to end up before the courts and they'll have to decide uh, whether and how an impeachment inquiry can be instigated, whether you actually need a full vote. Uh, this has been precedent. But is that actually the constitutional mandate? Or is it up to the House to determine another way that it could uh, trigger impeachment? In, you know, although, we, as we said last time, there have only been three presidents who have been impeached. There have only been a, a total of uh, uh, you know, 17 people in history who have been impeached of anything. And uh, really, uh, it, it's so rare. Only eight of those have ever been convicted. Uh, none of them, obviously, were president of the United States. So uh, they were mostly federal judges, federal appointees. In fact, one of them is in Congress right now, Alcee Hastings, a representative from Florida. So even if you've been impeached, you could go on and serve again. Uh, and so the fact that this is happening during an election year could be quite unusual. You could have someone who is running for president even be impeached and then be reelected in November. It, it's, it's the most peculiar mm. uh, historical moment we've ever seen. OK, so um, I, I really want to have this free speech conversation with you um, about li limited speech, particularly in New York City, where they have banned the term, quote, illegal alien. So when we come back, I'm going to talk with Ben Johnson, the rights writer from the Acton Institute, um, about the rising cost of the freedom of speech and um, fines against particular speech in particular places. We'll be right back. I'm speechless. I must understand. 
So joining me uh, is Ben Johnson from the Acton Institute. You can check out what they're working on at uh, Acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. There's actually a commentary posted uh, there on the on the front page called Woke NBA, Kowtows to Chinese Communists. Um, that's a free speech conversation that has uh, incredible worldview conversational opportunities in it. Before we jump to that, Ben, let's talk about New York City. New York City has banned the use of the term illegal alien. Um, and so if someone deems that language to be used, quote, with intent to demean, humiliate or harass a person, uh, then then the offender, the person who says illegal alien in the city of New York can be fined up to two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. First of all, how can I judge the motives of a person speaking on the street and New York City is a big place where people from all over the world travel in and out of continuously. Um, and it would seem like policing this is going to be pretty challenging. Uh, you've put your finger on the most important issue of this, which uh, really it's twofold. One of them is the threat to free speech. And then there's the issue of even if such a law were constitutional or allowed to stand in that way, how would you decide whether some the reason someone said what they said? You would You would have to have... Uh, either uh, absolute solid proof that uh, they admit what they're they're doing is discriminatory. They say, "I said this, and I intended to discriminate," uh, as though they were challenging uh, the law. Or uh, you would have to have you know, the world's most amazing telekinesis, the, the most amazing uh, uh, you know, uh, ability to read someone's mind and put that on trial. So you're right there. And, and you know, by the way, it, it says uh, you, you're not allowed to discriminate against someone based on their English proficiency and that it's also uh, you're also fine if you uh, threaten to call immigration based on a discriminatory motive, which, which, again, gets to the heart of how do you discern what someone's motive is? Uh, so part of this is is just trying to discourage people from calling immigration because New York City is is a sanctuary city. Uh, but you know, the term illegal alien is is often used in U.S. law, so it, it's it's difficult to know which portion which portion of government you should follow the the local uh, ordinance that tells you that you're not supposed to use this term or the federal law that uses that term. Uh, so so that's that's the government at loggerheads with itself, but. But uh, you're absolutely right that this is a case where the government is trying to police speech. It's trying to police thought. And uh, the most important issue of this is that people should be uh, free to engage in whatever kind of speech they like. There should be uh, prices to pay for discrimination, but it should be enforced through uh, through social pressure, not through uh, the government. If, if someone says something that's truly discriminatory, I'm going to get upset regardless of whether there's a law against it or not because I'm a Christian. I also find myself wondering whether or not um, this kind of law would then apply to, let's say, the New York Times and every news outlet and agency that uh, broadcasts from the city of New York um, and whether or not they will then sterilize any any language, any any speech where this appears, um, because this is language that is frequently used. I mean, as you have noted, it's language in U.S. law. Um, it's also language that's frequently used by the president of the United States and lots of other folks. And so they're going to have to either misquote or or like blank quote, like, uh, you know, where you bleep out something um, in in both The New York Times and and in all of their on air broadcasts, radio, television. I mean, I, it's ridiculous. I mean, it's a it's th- this is why we don't limit speech. 
this is actually why we don't limit speech, because when you start doing this, um, you you render conversation meaningless. Uh, that's an outstanding insight. Uh, the fact that this is rife with opportunities for censorship of an entire point of view. Uh, so if you, you uh, say a certain word and the person doesn't like the point of view and they can associate it with uh, a, a certain point of view that has been deemed politically incorrect, then you can be fined $250,000, which the, the average person can't afford. Uh, and, and nonetheless, uh, you will have to pay that because you're expressing a point of view that is disfavored by Bill de Blasio or the city council. And uh, at the same time, national conversations can't take place because someone uh, is, is saying something on a news outlet uh, that, uh, like the New York Times, would be uh, fined for publishing or printing or distributing within the, the five boroughs. So uh, that's an outstanding insight. And we see this intense sort of almost 1984 effort to demonize certain words or to uh, forbid us from using certain words. This is one instance. Uh, of course, the, the proper use of pronouns uh, for transgender people is another. Uh, it's an attempt not only to, uh, to say that you must accept the ideology, but that uh, you will be fined or, or have some sort of uh, uh, consequence if you don't follow through with the state view of, of uh, gender versus sex uh, in, in biology. And, uh, for example, there's even uh, Elizabeth Warren unveiled a plan that uh, would, would tax lobbyists. Uh, if they engage in government lobbying. But the Constitution guarantees the right to lobby the government on your behalf. So uh, I, I think that lobbying is a terrible thing. There's a great deal of corruption, but uh, the proper way to do that isn't to tax speech. It's to put other barriers in place so that there isn't a constant revolving door, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, all right. I'm going to work up a Carmen's no-no language list, and then uh, I will I will describe myself as the sole arbiter of uh, of what can and cannot be said. And then this will be resolved for everyone. Right. I mean, there's a reason yeah. we don't function that way. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm old enough, just just barely old enough, and I, I don't celebrate it necessarily. But the uh, the, the great barrier, uh, the great breakthrough of a, a certain movement in uh, the 1960s and 70s was saying certain words on television. You know, there was a, a Supreme Court case invo- involving a, a comedian who used Seven words you weren't supposed to use on the radio that was broadcast in full on the radio. I don't agree with that uh, because we do have radio guidelines that are uh, prescribed by uh, by the federal government, particularly on a federally funded radio station like the one that did it. But uh, it, in the old days, the left was celebrating speech and trying to break down barriers. Now it's trying to constrain speech to the greatest extent possible. And really, if you have to foreclose an entire argument that's against you, uh, that's an admission that your argument is not very strong. They can withstand intellectual scrutiny or the idea that intellectual scrutiny and, and cogitation itself is somehow a threat to your worldview uh, should should be a red flag that you might be on the wrong path. Yeah, absolutely. OK, I wish we had another 10 minutes to talk about um, this free speech versus China uh, on the topic of the NBA, but we, we don't have time to talk about that today. But I feel like in terms of worldview conversations and the conversation about the freedom of speech, with the, the reaction of China to this is really um, it's really an opportunity for Christians to talk about the difference in the honor and the shame culture view of things um, and obviously communist totalitarianism versus uh, the freedom 
of thought and speech that we not only enjoy here in the United States, but the basis of that, which is our understanding of justice, you know, based in right and wrong, not in honor and shame. And so just real opportunities to dig around, um, especially when, you know, the NBA is the subject because obviously high profile um, high profile and organization as opposed to individual. It's just it's a fascinating case. Well, it really is. And as you put your finger on what's most important, which is the scriptures tell us if our conscience accuses us, we have one greater than our conscience. And he intercedes with the Father and we, he gives us full remission of our sins if we are faithful and just to admit our sins. So we have we have absolute freedom and that allows us to walk without shame. Uh, if you believe that everything is shame-based, then you have to shut down anything that uh, impinges upon your human dignity, whether it's a, a doctor in the United Kingdom who is uh, has a certain view of uh, gender, or if you're China and you see someone holding a sign half a world away uh, condemning what you're doing, everything that might call your personal uh, conscience to be pricked has to be shut down. It's just it's so many fascinating stories. I know, Ben, we've got to we've got to find more time. Thank you so very much for being with us again today. We look forward to it every single week. Thank you. God bless, Carmen. That's Ben Johnson. You can check out what he's working on at Acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. You can follow him on Twitter at The Rights Writer. We'll be right back. Okay, so the headlines are blazing this morning um, with content related to the military incursion by our NATO ally Turkey against our very recent uh, anti-ISIS allies in northern northeastern Syria. It's a group of people known as the Kurds. It is a d- diverse minority population, um, and they are people with whom we have had a relationship over a very long period of history. They are uh, a- an ethnic minority. Uh, many of them, or at least some of them, are Christian. The Christians in the region are also Kurdish. And so when we talk about these attacks of Turkey upon this population of people, you're going to hear lots of discussion about the betrayal of the United States in terms of commitments we made to them um, as they have been fighting on our behalf against ISIS in the region. They, they are also the ones whom we have charged with guarding tens of thousands of ISIS prisoners Um, And the question is whether or not in order to defend their own homeland and their own families, their own communities, the Kurds will abandon their posts um, in terms of guarding these ISIS prisoners. And they will instead go home to guard the lives of their family members against this Turkish incursion, which the United States has allowed by the withdrawal of U.S. troops. Okay, so to unpack all of that, I can uh, Erdemir will be here. He is a former member of the Turkish parliament. And the Kurds and their history and the relationship with Turkey are part of his area of expertise. So next up, Iken, right here on Mornings with Carmen. Have you ever been burned by waiting too long after the check engine light comes on? You know, before you take your car in for service? I really believe in preventative maintenance. But doing it? Well, that's something else altogether. Hi, I'm Callie Breeze with Thrivent, helping you be wise and thrive. You know, it's a good idea to do preventative maintenance with your finances, too, to prepare for the expected and the unexpected expenses that creep up on you, or maybe jump out and surprise you. Create a strategy that's informed by your faith and takes into account your daily needs, potential emergencies, and your future goals. Planning ahead helps make sure you don't get in a tough spot. And if you need help, 
seek out a financial professional, one who understands how your faith relates to your decisions about money. So, does your financial check engine light on? If it is, do a little preventative maintenance. You'll find you're able to live a more content, confident, and generous life. Joining me now, Icon Erdemir. He's a former Turkish uh, member of parliament. He now works with the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies here in the United States. Um, Icon, welcome back. Uh, thank you for having me. So um, there are lots of uh, threads we could pull in the conversation related to what's happening in northeastern Syria right now. Um, I would like for you to present what I have not heard anyone else talking about and that is the reality in northeastern Syria um, in terms of the model of of basically a secular, self-governing people that's pretty diverse. So in the news, we basically just hear about the Kurds, and we're not even hearing about all the diversity of the Kurds. Um, but that that does not really account for everybody who is in this region of Syria, nor the way the, that these very diverse peoples have been living. And that seems to be what's really under attack. Uh, Definitely. I think that's a great way to reframe the debate, uh, because on both sides of this debate, I think there is a fallacy. You know, uh, in in the U.S. and in the EU, uh, there is talk about, you know, Syrian Kurds, Kurds in northeast Syria. And on the part of Turkey, the the rebuttal is, no, 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 this is not about Kurds. This is about the YPG. This is about uh, a a terrorist organization. And this is a counterterrorism operation. But that the picture, the big picture, is actually more complex than that. Why? Because northeast Syria, first of all, is a heterogeneous entity. It's, uh, I, I know the Middle East has been homogenizing uh, through very violent strategies lately. But this is one part of the Middle East where we see not only Syrian Kurds, also Syrian Arabs, Syriac Christians, uh, flourishing Protestant churches, uh, you know, small uh, Armenian communities, as well as the Yazidis. So uh, what uh, the Syrian Democratic Councils, you know, this political umbrella in charge of northeast Syria has done is that they managed to build a self-governing, secular, relatively egalitarian and inclusive uh, polity, a, a model at work. Is it perfect? Definitely not. Has, have there been mistakes? Definitely, yes. But compared to what we see all around in the Middle East, is this the best hope for coexistence, uh, you know, intercommunal tolerance uh, and religious freedoms? Definitely. And so when, when Erdogan um, of Turkey wants to create what he describes as uh, a safe zone. Um, What he's talking about is wiping out the current reality there. It's not about making it safe for people. It's about making it safe for a totalitarian view of the world, which he would very much like to extend beyond uh, the borders of Turkey and into this region. Now, Erdogan has... Complex calculations. You know, he's a very shrewd politician. So he has goals at home and abroad. But the driving logic always is his ideology. You can never understand Erdogan's moves without understanding his strong 
Islamist convictions. This is what pushed him to politics as a teenager. Uh, he has been inculcated with deeply anti-Christian and anti-Semitic values, anti-Western values, and one can always trace those, you know, light motives in his moves. So here too, he, what he calls the safe zone, you know, on the Turkish-Syrian border, and it might be a 30-kilometer zone, as he calls it, uh, would actually be an opportunity for him to socially engineer a model that he would like to see on the ground. In fact, we already have uh, prior examples of this. Turkey has had two cross-border operations into Syria. The latest one was in Afrin. And we have seen what happened in Afrin. You know, Turkey backed uh, Islamist proxies. These are, back then, these were called the Free Syrian Army. Now Erdogan has rebranded them as a national army, a Syrian national army. So these are basically Islamist uh, majoritarian authoritarian types who would like to impose their very strict worldview on the local populations. Hence, when we take a look, look at reports from various rights and freedoms organizations in Afrin, we have seen looting, we have seen desecration of uh, worship halls, we have seen hostage taking for ransom, and we have seen torture and ill treatment of the locals. Hence, uh, some of the local Kurds and Yazidis and Syriac Christians, you know, didn't feel safe and they had to leave the area. So I think now the concern around the world is, would this cr new cross-border operation, the third cross-border operation into Syria, given the fact that it will again be uh, with the use of these Islamist proxies, uh, lead to yet another wave of ill-treatment and atrocities uh, against the locals. When we come back, uh, Dr. Aykan Erdemir, former member of the Turkish parliament, an expert on the Kurds, now a senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies in Washington, D.C. He and I are going to continue our conversation um, uh, I can, when we come back, I'd love for you to distinguish for us so, sort of between some of the groups of people that we're talking about. One of the things that Erdogan uh, seems to be want to doing is to, quote, return Syrians, you know, to Syrian refugees currently living in Turkey to Syria. But that's but this region is not necessarily where these people came from. So can we talk about that right after a quick break? Definitely. Great. So more uh, more next here on Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Aykan Erdemir uh, serves now with the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, uh, but at one point in time, he was a member of the Turkish parliament. He is obviously uh, has a worldview that includes the experience of the Turkish people. He understands President Erdogan uh, and his worldview and his Islamist passions. He also understands uh, the situation in northeastern Syria, and that is the location that we are talking about today. That's the geography um, that's a part of today's conversation. So again, um, Icon, thank you so much for being here with us and helping us to understand what is an intensely complex situation. Always a pleasure. Let's talk about these um, these refugees, these Syrians who have been living in Turkey because of the Syrian civil war. Um, where where have they come from across the nation of Syria? And what about this plan of Erdogan to basically send them all back to this portion of northeastern Syria, which is not where they came from? 
Now, first, the numbers. Turkey has 3.6 million displaced Syrians. Uh, these are not refugees in the legal sense of the term, because Turkey does not recognize refugees from the East. These are people with temporary protection status. So their future is precarious in Turkey. Erdogan has weaponized these refugees, these you know, displaced Syrians, um, as a basically trump card against the EU. In fact, just an hour ago, he threatened to send 3.6 million to the EU if the EU keeps opposing his Syria operation. But then Erdogan's plan for this third incursion of, into Syria, in northeast Syria, is to resettle up to 3 million of these displaced Syrians in this region. He has voiced this plan of his at his UN General Assembly address a few weeks ago. And of course, this raised eyebrows. Why? Because first of all, a vast majority of these displaced Syrians are not necessarily from this region. They're mostly Arabs and Sunni Muslim. And uh, critics, including me, see this as a sinister move for demographic engineering in northeast Syria. Ultimately, what Erdogan has in mind is to create a belt, an, an ethnic Arab Sunni Muslim belt on the Turkish Syrian border. And this would eliminate Kurdish majority areas. And what he is really trying to eliminate is not necessarily Kurdish majority pockets, but more importantly, eliminate this model, this political model that he sees as a threat. And uh, basically, when we take a look at what's happening there at this point, you know, we see flourishing churches, we see Yazidis worshipping properly, we see women in employment and in positions of power. So we see a, a, a secular, pro-Western, inclusive model which is actually what threatens Erdogan the most, I think. Because once these ideas take hold, once this model takes hold, guess what? Other peoples in the region would also want to replicate it. So, Icon, let me bring this home here for uh, American listeners. Um, I want you just to imagine for just a moment that whatever community you live in right now um, the government decided, you know what, you, we need you to be out of the way because we intend to move an entirely different people group who are historically um, uh, American, but are from a completely different part of the United States than you are. Um, and they have now been living as displaced people across the border, let's say, in Canada. And Canada decides, no, no, we are going to move you out of the way so that we can have these people who we like better than you as a buffer between us and you. And so that we can radically change the community in which you live to more reflect what we think the world should be like. Now, here in America, we would be hopping mad um, about such a uh, social engineering project were the government to undertake it, particularly if a foreign government wanted to undertake it. And so, um, Icon, I, I get what you're talking about. I am not sure that this is being um, uh, that this is what is being discussed uh, in in sort of the the largest spaces of, of media today in terms of what's happening in northeastern Syria. And that's definitely Turkish President Erdogan's framing success. He has his way not only with Turkish media, but global media as well. You know, we're talking about a strong man who managed to publish 
you know, several op-eds by himself and through his spokesperson in the Washington Post, so in the New York Times. So he uh, gets offered these columns uh, in, you know, leading uh, liberal Western media outlets. And then he reframes the entire debate. Uh, and meanwhile, readers and, you know, world audiences miss key questions. For example, let me pose one of these questions. Turkey already controls a significant chunk in the northwest part of Syria through its proxies and through its forces. Now, why doesn't Erdogan resettle some of the Syrian refugees in this region? And these are, to some extent, some of them are uh, Arab-majority regions. And some of the refugees in Turkey are actually from these regions. And I think even this shows that Erdogan has some sinister motivations behind this whole resettlement deal. And if, in case anyone is wondering, oh, maybe he's a humanist. He's thinking about the best of these refugees. He wants to repatriate them. Look, this is Erdogan who repeatedly threatened the same group of refugees, telling them, I'll bust you to the European Union. You know, I'll weaponize you, basically. So he, this definitely is not a human being who cares about these refugees, who cares about these individuals. He, he, to him, they're just a bargaining ploy. So I know that folks can obviously be um, listening to you and what you're reading and writing. Um, who else is covering this in such a way that you feel like is, is worthy of our attention? Who's out there um, speaking the truth about what's going on? At where, you know, who else are you listening to on these matters? Uh, first of all, let me begin with my colleagues at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, you know, on the first day of this crisis, we had, you know, five op-eds in uh, America's leading media outlets. So please uh, tune to FTD.org. <coughs> Beyond that, um, I, I think uh, the key question is, how can we listen to Turkey's silenced voices? Meaning, mm. uh, given the, the repression on the media in Turkey, uh, for example, just again, an hour ago, uh, one of the internet editors of uh, Turkey's leading independent dailies, Birgün, was detained from his home for coverage of these news. And uh, the co-chairs of the pro-Kurdish party uh, have been informed that there is now an investigation into them. So they'll probably end up in jail, just like many other Kurdish politicians have been jailed. So I would recommend... You know, go to some of these local media outlets which have English coverage. For example, mm -hmm. Agos is Turkey's Armenian weekly, A-G-O-S, agos.com. Uh, check what, what local communities are trying to get across. I think that's also key to get a, you know, a ground up perspective. And people can also follow you on Twitter, uh, Icon Erdemir. You post uh, great information there as well. FDD.org is the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. That may be the easiest place for you to find Icon and his, uh, his Twitter follow. Um, Icon, thank you so much. Uh, we, we will have you back as this story continues to uh, unfold. Uh, definitely. Thanks for having me. Uh, always a pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure to talk with you. All right, friends, we've got to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back.
right. You know, all news is local. I think that's one of the things that uh, Icon is pointing out to us. Uh, all news is local. And so what's happening locally where you are today? What's happening in your life? What are the uh, celebrations? What are the frustrations? What are the griefs? What are the anxieties? What are you dealing with this morning? What do you anticipate having to deal with today? Um, are you armored up for the day? Did you begin this day by putting on the full armor of God? Are you wearing the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness? Are the shoes of, gos- of the shoes of the gospel on your feet? Are you carrying the shield of faith? Are you wearing the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit? Are you praying in the spirit in all circumstances? I mean, do you recognize that uh, we are God's people in God's armor sent out by God's commission under the authority of Jesus Christ. That's who you are. Go live it. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.